Okay. He's like a wizard. Good. I mean, arms, closed, hand, uh, associated with the uh, word hand and work and throw and worship. Your hands made me form you. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort, according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. May my heart be blameless towards your decrees, that I may not put to shame. Amen to that. Okay. Uh, let's see here. We'll read this day in Christian history first. It is the 24th. Yes, it is. The truth is a kernel of wheat must be planted in the soil. Unless it dies, it will be alone, a single seed. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. October 24th, 1851 was the funeral of Archibald Alexander, the first professor of Princeton Theological Seminary. That's a school that's gone right down the tubes, but it started out under a good premise. Under his leadership, the school had become the leading seminary in the nation. The funeral was held in Princeton's First Presbyterian Church. The funeral procession then passed in front of Nassau Hall, where the college was located, before following Witherspoon Street to the cemetery. Leading the procession were 250 students and the professors of the college. One of the college students there that day was Robert Hamill Nassau, a young man with dreams of becoming a great orator or a famous soldier. To his surprise, the funeral produced in him a great longing for spiritual peace and purpose in life. A few weeks later, alone in a field near Princeton, he committed his life to Jesus Christ. Nassau had taken an odd route to Princeton. He took the freshman year course at Lafayette College, where his father was a professor. Apparently, he was not ready for college because the next year he attended the high school at Lawrenceville, New Jersey, which was run by his mother's brothers just down the road from Princeton. The following year, he ended, entered the College of New Jersey, as Princeton University was known at the time. After graduating in 1854 at the age of 19, he taught for a year at Lawrenceville and then entered Princeton Theological Seminary. On Sundays, Nassau taught Sunday school at the town's Black Presbyterian Church. His first summer, he asked the Presbyterian Board of Publication for the most difficult field in America, being a Colporteur, whatever that is, a person who travels around distributing Bibles and Christian literature, and was given Missouri and Kansas. He spent his second summer as a missionary to the boatmen working along the Pennsylvania Canal. During the school year, he joined the Brotherhood, a secret organization composed of students planning to go to the mission field. During Nassau's seminary days, the 12 active members kept the challenge of foreign missions before the rest of the student body. Upon graduating from the seminary in 1859, Nassau asked the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions to send him to the most difficult field they had. They appointed him to their Corsico mission in present-day Equatorial Guinea on the coast of West Africa. 
Nassau wrote in his journal, many of my acquaintances protested to me and one said, what a fool you are, Nassau, to go to Africa to die. Nassau added, I quietly determined not to die. To prepare himself further, Nassau received his MD degree from the University of Pennsylvania in 1861. He was ordained in July of that year and in September was on Corsico Island off the west coast of Africa. Nassau spent the next 45 years in missionary service, mastering several African languages and establishing several mission stations. Somewhat conventional in his personal religious faith, he was anything but conventional in his missionary methodology. His well-loved Winchester rifle is referred to frequently in his journals, and he was a pioneer in using industrial training for evangelistic purposes. Most important, he helped translate the Old Testament and part of the New Testament into Benga, a dialect of Bantu. Robert Nassau was a fruit of the life of Archibald Alexander. The death of Alexander was used by God to bring new life to Nassau, who in turn passed it on to hundreds in West Africa. And they say, we never know how we will affect those around us. The words shared at the funeral of Archibald Alexander were used by God to transform the life of one young man whom God in turn used to transform the lives of many others. Remember the old familiar children's song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Going to Let It Shine? Let's do it. And they cite Matthew 5:15. don't hide your light under a basket. Instead, put it on a stand and let it shine for all. Good stuff there. We need to get a couple of uh, prayer requests. We got uh, Larry and Chris is better, but she's had bad migraines all week, so we hope they're not back today. And then uh, Doug and Dylan Ireland both are suffering with their own afflictions at this time and have asked for prayer today. So uh, we'll go ahead and remember them and anybody else. Heavenly Father, we certainly do uh, thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to pray for these people and also for the others that are out there that are suffering that did not email or maybe they did and I just haven't been able to get to the emails. But uh, you know who they are. You know every affliction that every one of us has and the things that distress us and bring us low. So we would ask for just the peace and contentment that uh, you provide and the wonderful hope that we have set before us that can turn our eyes into uh, uh, happiness even during times of real affliction. So may that be so in each one of us. And Lord, we uh, ask that this uh, study hour would be something that would bless anybody that's here or that's listening or that does listen in the future and uh, that things would be handled properly and without uh, any... Uh, error, but if there is error, that you would alight them to it so that they would know that uh, to uh, have the right doctrine. Just alert all of us to that so that we would be pursuing you properly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, but go back wherever is logical. Top of the paragraph is 20. All right. But Christ is indeed raised from the dead, the first fruits. Of those who have fallen asleep. But since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, then when his when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Yeah, there you go. And it's almost identical here. So 
Let's see here. The previous verse spoke of things to come concerning the rule of Christ, a rule which will continue until the kingdom is delivered, as it says, to God the Father. This will be when all rule, authority, and power have ended, and there is only the kingdom of God which remains. In fact, he must reign till he put all enemies under his feet, as Paul says. There are at least two logical reasons why this must be so. The first is because it is morally proper for it to be this way. God created Adam and gave him free reign in the Garden of Eden, but with one prohibition. Adam disobeyed and plunged the world into sin, and we're still being affected by it right now, right here in this world. The devil's rule began, and with it there have been many lesser kingdoms which have sprung up in this fallen world. In order to return things to the way they were intended to be, all of these lesser kingdoms must be ended, and the rule go back to one man. So as we see in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, all of the kingdoms of the world and the divisions of people, those things will come to an end at some point. But God has ordained them in order to bring about his redemptive purposes. Uh, this is already accomplished in God's mind, and it is revealed as accomplished in the pages of Scripture. Two pertinent verses of note come from the book of Revelation. We'll take you first to Revelation chapter 11, where it says too far there, Charlie. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And then in Revelation chapter 20, we get something similar in note. It says the devil who deceived them, this is Revelation 20 verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So much for annihilationism. The kingdoms of the world will come to an end, and the devil who deceived man will be destroyed forever. It was morally proper for this to occur, and the Bible shows us that it will, in fact, come about. The 20th uh, chapter of Revelation is how close to the end of the Bible. <laughs> Three chapters. You got 22, 21, 20. So it's the third chapter from the end. Yeah, but you're right. It's two away, but it's the third from the end. When was the devil introduced into the Bible? Three of Genesis. So you got a little book in there. Three, he came in. Three, he goes out. Wonderful stuff in the Bible. Just little patterns all over the place. Anyway, um, as I said, the kingdoms of the world will come to an end. And the devil who deceived man will be destroyed forever. It was morally proper for this to occur. And the Bible shows us that it will, in fact, come about. It's written as a done deed, even though it's future to us now. The second reason that Christ must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet is because Scripture, based on the moral necessity of the matter, foretold that it would occur. It has done it through the Old Testament, and it is confirmed in the New. Two parallel passages which highlight this are first found in Psalm 110, which I think Burke is probably already citing in his head. But, uh, whoops, I'm going the wrong way there, Charlie. It's a messianic psalm. It is. It's a messianic psalm, all right. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. But Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's right. And then in Hebrews 10, we read this. One John. Whoops, going the wrong way again, Charlie. Hebrews chapter 10. 
verses 12, it says, uh, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. That's right. There you go. What is right and proper has been prophesied. As the Bible is the word of God, it cannot fail to come about. And therefore, Christ must rule until it does. We should have more surety in our hearts that Christ will accomplish these things than we do anything else. Life application in God's mind, the battle is already won. He has revealed this truth to us for our comfort and reassurance during times of trouble and difficulty. Let us hold fast to the truth of Christ as an anchor for our souls. I told you this before, Fifth J. Pentecost. Dwight J. Pentecost. Wrote a book, Things to Come. Yes. And the uh, ruler, whatever he was in Israel, gave him a big, you know, you know some plaque. Oh. This. Yeah. He thanked him for that because he read it. Page one through the end. Is that right? Yes, he did. Yeah, Pentecost. Is he, like he's still alive. Argue, but this was, this was before. Yeah. Is he still alive, Pentecost? No. No, no okay. No. He's gone. Okay. All right, 1526. Uh, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Absolutely, and we'll see that right at the end of the book of Revelation there. But 1526, considering the Greek here, will shed light on what Paul is thinking. The verb for will be destroyed is in the present indicative middle or passive voice. And so rather than will be, the action has already begun and is ongoing until a fixed point. A good way to understand this would be to consider a major league baseball team which has no chance of winning the pennant. They have lost the right to play in the World Series and they continue to play because other teams still have a chance. Until the series is ended, they continue in order to meet a set plan, which was initiated at the beginning of the season. Though they are defeated, their defeat will continue until the plan is finished. The devil is defeated. The plan, he will continue to be defeated until the plan is finished. Now, I want you to know before we go on, I am not a sports fan. I really had to think that one through because, uh, you know, what was that they call it? A pennant? And, you know... I'm just using an example that you'll understand, but don't, don't think that I'm some type of a sports person here. All right, as the pulpit commentary notes, it is already begun and continuing by an inevitable law. Therefore, Paul is thinking is being destroyed until it is finished, is a good way of paraphrasing that. Further, there is a definite article in front of death. Therefore, death is being personified and capitalizing it is more appropriate. As Tyndale's version renders this, lastly, death with a capital D, the enemy shall be destroyed. In support of the ongoing and yet inevitably completed nature of the action, we can review several pertinent verses from the New Testament which concern the work of Christ. These are only a few of many which show us that death is defeated, but that it will continue in this defeated condition for a set amount of time. First, from 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says in verse 10, But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, we still see death. We see it everywhere, but it is abolished. It's done in God's mind, and it's done in actuality, in what's going on in the world, even though, I'm sorry, potentially, even though actually we're still going through this process. Paul shows that in Christ's first appearance, death was abolished. However, death still exists, as it is quite evident from the world around us. 
And so to understand this, again, think of the baseball team that has no chance of winning the pennant, and yet it still plays during the regular season. And so even though this action is done, it is waiting a future fulfillment. Next, we see that it was through Christ's death that this came about. In this, death is tied in with the devil, showing that it is the devil who has the power of death. And that's found in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Christ, likewise shared in the same that through death, he might destroy him, meaning the devil, who had power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject, that's right, to bondage, subject to bondage. Next, in John's first epistle, he shows that death is tied to sin. This takes us back to the very beginning, when the devil deceived the man. In so doing, man sinned and death entered the world. As the wages of sin is death, it shows that the work of the devil is what brought that about, and that's found in 1 John 3, verse 8, which I cite quite often. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, here's a question for you all. Has anybody here sinned in the past week? Okay, I, I, I'm getting a lot of harumphs and harumphs, which means that they all admit they have. Well, the Bible just said that he who sins is of the devil. Are you of the devil? Why not? You just said that you sinned. What? In Christ. You are in Christ, but you just said you sinned. I did. And it says he who sins of the devil. We've got to think this through. Somebody help me out here. Romans 7. Romans 7. Yes, he will free me from this body of death. That's true. Well, but, that's I, I, in the flesh, I serve. That's true as well. But why is it that you said you've sinned? You, you've acknowledged you have, and I will too. No doubt. Was it? Subscribing to Jesus well that is true it's what he said as well you're in christ you've got to get out jail free card the answer is that's right say it again we are not imputed we are not imputed sin even though we do sin we are not imputed sin another logical reason for eternal salvation if you are in christ which is true and you've got the get out devil card free uh get out jail card free that is true too but how does it happen? The mechanics of it is we are in Christ, and because we are in Christ, sin is not being imputed. Therefore, even though we've sinned, we are not of the devil because we are in Christ. The sin is not imputed because by sin is, uh, uh, by the law is the knowledge of sin, and by sin, the wages of death uh, is the wages of death. So we understand that we are not being imputed sin, and therefore we cannot die any longer. We will die physically, but we are forever belonging to God. We oh. will never lose that. That's although the answer. It, although it's not imputed to me, this is just me talking. Yes. My guilt is... I was just going to say exactly what you just said. Even though it's not imputed, I, I hate it more. And that's what Paul speaks about, exactly what you were saying in Romans 7. It's that we've got this dilemma because we're, we're free from sin, but we're still sinning. And how who will free us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Christ Jesus. That's exactly right. Second Corinthians 5.19 there to tell those people that are not imputed. That's right. Second Corinthians 5.19. That's exactly right. Okay, so 1 John 3.8, if you sin, you're of the devil. And this, the reason why the Son of Man was manifest was that he came to destroy the works of the devil. Yes? We are oriented to flesh and blood. That's right. Physical, visible. That's right. 
what we're dealing with here is it's spiritual. spiritual. That's exactly right. And it's a different kind of a, a realm, and it's a different kind of get out of free. That's right, because he has brought us from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. We are in Christ. We don't understand very well. That's right. And we struggle with it. I, Paul struggled with it, and I'm struggling with it, and I know we all do. So that's exactly right. We're in our physical body. We have the spiritual nature which has been granted to us, and there's a war going on. And it's, as a matter of fact, let's really quickly, before we finish that, because what he said is correct, and where is that? Burke cited it. Mr. Uh, Magnuson kind of talked about it, and we'll just go to a little bit of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it says, um, What shall we then say to these things? If... Uh, is that what that's not the one I wanted no, Romans, Romans. Uh, I, yeah I, yeah Romans 7 I'm reading Romans 9 that's why sorry about that okay it, it always helps to be on the right page and I do that all the time um, has then what is good to uh, become death to me meaning the law certainly not but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful that's one of the reasons for the giving of the law is to show the utterly sinful nature of sin for we know that the law is spiritual but i am carnal sold under sin for what i'm doing i do not understand for what i will to do that i do not practice but what i hate that i do everybody here acknowledged that just a second ago if then what i do i do what i will not to do I agree with the law that it is good because the law is showing us this. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, which he just mentioned, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find that a law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. I'm in bondage. I'm in captivity. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death i thank god through jesus christ our lord so then with the mind i serve the law of god but with the flesh the law of sin there we go we've all admitted it and there it is what you covered that today i believe in the daily bible i may have but back and forth with paul versus peter oh yes yes that's right i did post that today i never know which one i posted because i've got the one like nine i know it's all going on at one time and so i i do things and uh I usually type those commentaries when I'm still asleep anyway, so oh, really? yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't get up until about nine or so. I'm physically out of the bed at four, but I'm really up about nine. So anyway, 1 John 3, 8, we just read, Jesus Christ came to undo this, meaning the works of the devil. Okay, he came to undo it. That's the primary reason. There are lots of things that Jesus said, I have come to, that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I've come to do this. I've come to do that. I've come. And there's a lot of things that Christ claimed I've come to do. But this is the defining statement of what he came to do, to destroy the works of the devil. Because if the devil didn't deceive the man and man never sinned, there wouldn't be a need for Christ to come and die for us. That's the primary reason. But all the other things are added bonuses. I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Why? We don't even know what it means. 
So it's not, it can't be the primary thing because we don't even know what it means. But we do know what the devil is. There's, everybody knows that. I don't care if they say they don't. They do. Anyway, Jesus Christ came to undo this. He accomplished it at the cross, destroying the power of the devil in all who believe. But why didn't he just toss the devil into hell right then? The answer is that he is building a church out of the redeemed of the world. If he simply destroyed the devil at that time, there would be no church and thus no living temple. Instead, the victory was won, but the devil has been allowed to continue in the world until a time determined by God. In this, we can think of the team which will eventually win the pennant. It is comprised of people who are winners, but they are not winners until the end of the season. Those who come to Christ are in Christ and can never die again. But those who are not will both physically die and they will be eternally separated from God in the process because death continues to reign over them. Thus, we see why there is an ongoing nature to the work of Christ. But some wondrous day, even death will be eliminated forever. This is found right towards the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. Hang on a sec here. 18, 20, 21, verse 14. It says, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Once again, so much for annihilationism, but we'll go on. Um, it fits, those words that I just read fit perfectly with Paul's words of verse 26, which we are evaluating. That was Revelation 20. Did I say 20? Did I say, what did I say? I thought you said 21. I probably did say 21, but whatever, it's verse 20, 14, and 15. Correct. Okay, well, let me make a note of that because, I, yes, see, I, I've got to make a little note of that. Anyway, life application in Christ. <laughs> death is defeated. If you are in Christ, don't be fearful of the death which surrounds us. He has no, or I'm yeah, of the death, capital D, which surrounds us. He has no mastery over you. He does have mastery over your physical body. We are going to die unless the Lord comes for us first, but he has no mastery over your soul. Your okay. analogy is perfect. What's that? You're not a baseball fan at all. Because think about it. It's like, you know, you got the season going the whole time. Sure. And there's, you know, 28 teams that you are not going to make it. They're so absolutely no way. like, cut the games, go home, quit, quit bothering us with this. Well, that's why I say about basketball. Why don't they just play the last minute? No, Everybody go out, true. play the last minute, and be done. Because it's always down to, like, the last two seconds. <laughs> just play one minute, and whoever wins, wins. <laughs> anyway, um... Uh, you know, you think about another kind of angle on this, which is that, uh, what was it, the Miami Dolphins in the 70s, they, they were the perfect team, right? Perfect. They didn't lose any games. And yet, it's made of imperfect people. They all made mistakes. They had fumbles. They, you know, whatever. And yet, they had a perfect season, okay? The perfect season is in Christ. Even though we're imperfect and we're making fumbles and everything along the way, God is building a perfect team. And yes, I did remember that out of the top of my head. I don't know why, but I, a sports little guy. sports <laughs> nugget back there somewhere. Anyway, um, 27. 27. I did for, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. Okay, this one's a little different. It says the same thing. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Meaning, not. 
Okay. You know, I've been wondering all along why these glasses, which are prescription, I have to hold them farther away. And it's because I found out yesterday I had my eyes checked for next year and or this year, and I have to get a new prescription. And they said that they gave me these with the medium range, but not the close range because I, anyway, I don't know why they did that. They didn't tell me they did that. So I got medium range and that's why I've been struggling all year long. When I'm close like this, whatever, you know, I, you find these things out. And so I got my new glasses with a obviously more, um, whatever. Yeah, yeah, more intensity. Thank you. In other words, my eyes are getting worse. And I also have the first stages of that. What does it happen with your eye glazes? Cataracts. Cataracts. I got, uh, that's uh, my, uh, you have cataract? No, I have Rankin Continental. <laughs> I'm married to a Japanese, yes. Okay, there you go. 1527 comments. This verse goes all the way back to verse 25. Thus it makes verse 26 a parenthetical thought. The four at the beginning of the verse shows us this. The work of Messiah is ongoing in time, and it will continue until all things are placed under his feet meaning that all things are subjected to him. This is found in Psalm 8, verse 6. Let me read it to you. Hang on. Psalm 8, and then we go to verse 6. It says, whoops, I went too far on that one, didn't I, Charlie? Um, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. There you go. This verse from the psalm is speaking of man, but in the greater sense, it is speaking of Christ who took on the nature of man. So Adam, man, fell, but in the, I'm sorry, fell and lost his right to the world. Christ came to reclaim that. It is this work of Christ that is ongoing in the lives of the people of the world. Someday this work will be complete and death and Hades, as we saw in the last verse, will be cast into the lake of fire. When this occurs, all things will truly have been placed under his feet because the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. However, Paul wants to clarify the nature of the Godhead, so he continues with, but his term, all things, is speaking of the created order. Elsewhere, Christ's authority and supremacy over all things is noted, such as in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Now, we'll go there because that's one of my favorite sections of the Bible. Colossians 1, 15. Oops, one page back. And it says there, he, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That does not mean the firstborn of creation as if he's a created being. He's the firstborn over all creation. It's a different word in the Greek than what the Jehovah's Witnesses would try to get you to believe. For by him all things were created, meaning Christ. There can only be one creator. The uh, principle of contingency tells you that. If you want to know the first principles, we can do them again on the board one of these days, but the principle of contingency says that only a necessary being can create a contingent being cannot create anything, okay? A contingent being is something that is created. If Jesus was created as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim, then he is a contingent being and he cannot create anything. So, obviously Christ is the creator. We'll read it again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him, Christ, all things were created. He is a necessary being. He is God that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you read this verse that I just read you in the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they add in the word other. 
he created all other things because otherwise it absolutely blows away their theology. And if you look in the older New World translations, the word other is bracketed, meaning they've inserted it for your clarity and understanding. But since then, they've just taken out the brackets and they've said this is the original. Okay, so you can see where they're heading very quickly. Anyway, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. If he's before all things, that means he's before the creation, which means he must be the creator, a necessary being. That's right. He's before all things, and in him all things consist. I like to point out that the word consist doesn't really get the intent of it. The NIV paraphrases it very well by saying all things hold together. Okay, he holds all things together. But a word that, one word that defines that is the word subsist. By him all things subsist. John Darby's translation says subsist, and I stick with that because it's one word that accurately translates. the Consist is like, um, you know, this consists of pulp and, and ink, right? I mean, that's consistent. Consisting is like pudding. This is the consistency of the pudding. It, it doesn't get the right idea across. By him all things are held together. That gets the idea across, but it paraphrases the word subsist. Think of that word, and you've got a good word for understanding that. So um, he is before all things, and in him all things consist in he, meaning Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, all things, he may have the preeminence. He's the first, he's the first, he's the first, he's the first, he's in all things. For it pleased, and then they insert the words here, the Father, that. For it pleased in him, we'll just drop off the Father, that, because it's inserted. For it pleased in him, all the fullness should dwell. And by him, meaning Christ, to reconcile all things to himself. By him. That's speaking of God. It's not God the Father, though, because if it's God the Father, that's a, a separate person within the Trinity, within the Godhead. Speaking of God. Maybe God as Father, but not God the Father. Okay? Anyway. Um, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Everything centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything from the very beginning until the very infinite realms of eternity. That I don't want to say the end of eternity because there's no such thing as an end to eternity. Anyway, so that's uh, Colossians 1, 15 and 20 uh, through 20. And then we'll take you also to Hebrews chapter 2 just because we can. And uh, it says here in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the gladness, with the oil of gladness, more than your companions. All right. But it is not possible that he would have supremacy over the Godhead. Rather, he is a member of the Godhead. Therefore, Paul notes that it is evident. This is Paul's words, that he who put all things under him, meaning God, is accepted. 
Christ does not take preeminence over the Godhead itself because he's a member of the Godhead. That's what Paul is trying to tell us there. But if he's a member of the Godhead, then that means he is God. Thank you. Yes. All right. Um, let's see here. God is God. As the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all revealed to be God in the Bible, then it cannot be that one is greater than the others. They are co-equal because each is God. Therefore, he, meaning God, who put all things under him, meaning Christ, is accepted. Paul will continue his ex explanation of this in the next verse. Life application. We, as Christians, do not worship and serve a lesser God. Rather, we worship and serve Jesus, fully God. The doctrine of the Trinity is complicated, but it is neither contradictory nor is it irrational. It is logical and it reveals the true nature of God. Once again, time. All you have to do is think of time, the future. All right, think of God the Father. You don't see the future. You will never see the future, ever. Okay, you never see God the Father. The present, think of the Son. It's everything that we see, everything that we experience, everything that we interact with. There is, just like the Son. Time is one thing. There's always been a future, a present, and a past, and there always will be. Time is one thing, but it's made of three separate things that all reveal what time is. And then you think of the, and this is very short, analysis of this but you think of the past the past is what we remember it's what we learn from it's where our experiences are stored okay and that's what the holy spirit is the past gives us comfort because when i think of what happened in the past i can think of my good friends i can think of my wife because she's not here right now she's past right even though she's still alive hopefully okay i'm just saying that because i don't know i haven't been home i haven't talked to her today but right now she is past to me and until i see her again that won't be the case. So I have comfort in the thought of my wife. I have comfort in the thought of eight dogs at home. They're past to me right now, but they're hopefully also present to me right now as well, but not in my realm of existence. So if you think of time as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's a great analogy. It's probably the best analogy of the Trinity that's out there. There are many incorrect analogies of the Trinity, but time is a very, very good one. Anyway, um, I'll read you the explanation of that sometime. I've got it on one of my websites. Uh, what's his name? Dr. Nathan Wood uh, wrote a book. Um, uh, anyway, I can't remember the name of it, but he did a very good analysis using time and how it points to the Trinity. And it comes out mucho perfecto. Anyway, uh, let's see here. Um, we just read uh, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. It is not possible. I've said that. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Paul will continue his explanation in the next verse. Um, oh, I read the uh, life application too. So you're on 1528. Yeah. Okay. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Doesn't deny the Trinity at all. In fact, no. it supports it right there. Wonderful verse. This verse brings us to the final realization of the work of Christ and its meaning in the eternal state, which will proceed from it. Paul's words are obvious on the surface, and yet there are those who would attempt to undermine them. We have been shown that Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. As noted, this is referring to God as Father, rather than the Father within the Godhead. After showing us this, Paul then noted that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. This is described in Revelation 21, where death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. 
after that time is when Christ will deliver the kingdom over. In order to understand what this means, we arrive at verse 28. Now, when all things are made subject to him, meaning Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. Christ's mission being complete, there's no longer the need for mediatorial duties or whatever, okay? Christ's uh, mission being complete, there will be no more need for the mediatorial role he once performed. There will be no need for going through Christ to speak to God. Instead, we shall fellowship directly with God who is Jesus, as is noted in Revelation 1 verse 8. Let me take you there and we'll read what that says. Revelation 1 verse 8. I am, this is Jesus speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come. Okay, and then, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses will say, well, you know, uh, that's speaking of God the Father. And verse 11, if you go down a little further, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, because Jesus explicitly calls himself the first and last. So the Jehovah's Witnesses will say that the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, uh, who is the Lord, who is to come, the Almighty, that's God the Father. And down here, um, I'm the first and the last and all that is Jesus speaking. And I say, well, if you ever hear them say that at your doorstep, which you probably shouldn't be talking to them anyway, but if you do, all you need to do is say, well, then please answer this and take them to the very last page of the Bible in verse 13. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the first and the last. All the titles are in one sentence. So, And then they'll turn white and they'll say, I need to go ask the elders, and they'll never show up at your door again. Okay? Just so you know, I've had it happen to me. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, where was I? 1528. Oh, yeah. Revelation 1.8. Christ, who is now our focal point for all matters related to God will be made subject to him that God may be all in all. Ellicott, Charles Ellicott, explains these words thus. In these words are expressed the complete redemption of both of the race and of the individual. It is the great and sublime conclusion to which the moral enthusiasm and the earnest logic of the previous argument has necessarily brought us. There will be no consideration of any special office within the Godhead as there is now. Now we have the anticipation of God the Father as we always look forward to his presence, but he is ever out of reach. We have God the Son, who is our focal point in all matters related to our relationship with God. He is the light and path to that sublime time when we shall again be in full fellowship with God. Then we have the Holy Spirit, who is our helper in this walk. He is our comforter in our anticipation of full redemption by reminding us of the work of Christ. How do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who gave us the word. And when we read it, we are comforted. We are reminded of Christ. We are instructed on Christ. All of the things that the past does in time, the Holy Spirit does within the Godhead. Okay? God created the universe as a reflection of himself so that we could have at least a close understanding of what he is like. Anyway, uh, however, in the eternal state to come, there won't be these distinctions within the Godhead. Instead, there will be God ever before us, radiating, radiating out his wondrous light for all eternity. This is actually shown to be the case right on the last page of the Bible again, Revelation chapter 22, in verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. 
They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever. So good stuff there. Let's see here. We'll go on. Uh, Revelation 22. The distinctions within the Godhead that we now perceive will no longer be perceived in the same way. Instead, an entirely new order of understanding God will be realized. And may that day be soon. Life application. To deny the Trinity is to deny what God has done and is doing for man. We cannot deny the Trinity while attempting to lead someone to salvation. Because in a denial of the Trinity, we deny that Jesus Christ is the God-man. If he is not the God-man, then he is not the mediator for us to the Godhead. If he is not the mediator, then we are still in our sins, and we are not reconciled to God. Stand fast on the truth of God as is revealed in the pages of the Bible. Said this before, somebody always gets upset about it, but that's okay. Think it through. You can tell somebody about Jesus, and you can tell them that the Messiah came, he's a person that lived the perfect life, he died for your sins, and he came out of the grave, and uh, he is uh, whatever. And you never need to say anything about the Trinity. That person hears the message of the gospel as it's recorded in uh, 1 Corinthians um, 15, 3 and 4, and then in Romans 9 and 10, how you appropriate that, okay? You don't need to tell anybody about the virgin birth. You don't need to tell anybody about uh, any of the core doctrines of the faith. You just give them the gospel, they believe, and they receive the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. But if you start getting into high theology and telling people that, oh, God created a man that was came to die for our sins like the Job's witnesses do, and he died for our sins and he was raised again, that person will never be saved because you have denied the fundamental truth of who Jesus Christ is. He is now believed in a false Jesus. That's Galatians 1, 6 through 8. Okay, so it's important that when you give somebody the gospel, you don't need to muddy the waters. Just give them the gospel. And then later, their doctrine and training comes in. But if you deny a fundamental uh, precept of biblical doctrine, and you tell them that in advance, Jesus was not born of a virgin, and you tell them that that's just a myth, but then that person will not be saved because he's believed in a false Jesus. Keep the gospel simple, get them to understand it, get them saved, and then start teaching them proper doctrine. That is the best avenue to do, okay? Just the way it is. You've got something for me, don't you, Burke? No? Okay, okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, 29, yes. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those who are baptized for, that are, be, are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptizing for them? It is plural. It's uh, a plural word there, um, Cindy. I checked that out a week ago. Anyway, the subject verse is one which has resulted in many aberrant teachings and practices within the church and even among cults. I'll read it again and I'll explain why. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Okay, for example, the Mormons practice baptism for the dead, meaning in abstentia. There's a dead person, I'm baptizing you in his place, okay, in place of a person who has died but was not baptized. Other odd interpretations of this verse have also arisen, the list being way too long, though. However, these words have nothing to do with baptism in abstentia or any other such unusual rendering. Rather, the context must be considered to draw out the intended meaning. Paul begins with otherwise, 
to show us that this is something in contradistinction to something else. The proper context then is to go back to the end of the argument which precipitated his words from verses 1520 through 1528, which we just did. Those verses spoke of the reality of Christ's resurrection and the significance of that great act. The thought now is given in response to the words of verses 1512 through 1519, which ended with the exclamation, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In those verses, he was writing about the futility of our hope and faith if Christ is not risen from the dead. If Christ wasn't raised, then neither will anyone else be raised. All are dead and remain dead. And so Paul asks, based on his otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? The word dead here is plural, and it is referring to all who have believed in the resurrection of the dead and who have now passed on or who will pass on. All are baptized in hope and in eager anticipation of a literal resurrection from the dead. Everybody agree with that? You were believed in Christ, you were baptized, your hope is that you will be raised again. That's the point of one, believing in Christ, and two, demonstrating outwardly by being baptized that you will be raised from the dead. I'm buried with Christ in the water, I'm raised with Christ in the newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we get baptized. It's a public proclamation of the change that occurred in us. That's why we do that, okay? So, where was I? All are baptized in hope and in eager anticipation of a literal resurrection from the dead. But if there is no resurrection, then the hope is in vain. For the dead, then, is a reference to the state of the believer if the resurrection is not true. They are baptized as dead, and they will remain dead. The baptism was a useless gesture. On the contrary, though, we are not baptized for the dead, but for the hope of life. The very nature of baptism shows us that Christ died. Being submerged in the water is a picture of this, and then rose to newness of life. Being raised from the water is a picture of this. But if the dead do not rise at all, then why are they baptized for the dead? That's what Paul asks. These words go back to the thought of verse 18, which said, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If they have perished, then their hope has perished as well. Why would anyone follow those supposed faithful in baptism if they died without hope? It makes no sense. Being baptized to replace dead people who will never raise to life would be as pointless as their baptism was. They died in the hopes of a savior who's still in the grave and thus no savior at all. The entire thought that Paul is relaying is that in Christ there is hope, and those who have died in Christ have not died in vain, nor will any die in vain who follow in baptism in the hopes of eternal life through the risen Christ. This is why Paul uses both the terms sleep and dead at various points in his discussion. Sleep implies hope. Dead implies none. In Christ there is hope. Paul's next three verses will continue to explain this. Life application, despite the difficult nature of 1 Corinthians 15:29, it is a verse which speaks of hope. And not only for those who have gone before us, but for we who are still alive today. We receive baptism in the hope that it is based on the work of Christ, and which has been established in our forefathers who have gone before us. Christ is risen, and our hope is not in vain.
Good stuff. 1430. 1530. What do you got? Oh, you tell me. Curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Okay, it's from the movie Serenity, actually, uh, Firefox, if you ever, or Fire, anyway, uh, Firefly. Um, uh, it's like a cowboy space series. Anyway, so there you go. This was sent to me eons ago by Arlene, and so once in a while I wear it. It's just, yeah, one of the guys always had little dinosaurs on his uh, console as he's flying through space. So there you go. Anyway, go ahead, 1530. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Okay, Paul now delivers an added note of surety concerning the truth of the resurrection by beginning with the words, and why. This then is tied to the previous verse concerning being baptized for the dead, if the dead do not raise at all. Contrasting the dead of the previous verse, he now says, we. In this, he is speaking of the work of the apostles who risked life and limb in the spreading of the gospel message of Christ. These men and those who had heard and decided to follow their path were known to stand in jeopardy every hour. Their lives were constantly threatened as they carried out the work of sharing the gospel. He will conclude this line of reasoning with 1 Corinthians 15 verse 32, but there is much more concerning the difficult lives of the apostles recorded in the book of Acts and in extra biblical documents as well. They're not scripture. You don't want to go quoting them as scripture, but extra biblical documents concerning the apostles shows that 11 of them were martyred for their faith. John was boiled in oil. He didn't die, but he certainly suffered greatly because of that. Anyway, he's the one that is, was not actually martyred for his faith, but that's extra biblical. It's not in the Bible. So there you go. Uh, further, Paul writes concerning many of the difficulties he personally faced in the book of 2 Corinthians, which I'll take you to now. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says in verse 23, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At a night and a day, I have been in the deep. In journeys, often in perils of waters in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who has made the stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Lots of things he went through for the gospel. Why would he even bother? Why would he even bother unless the message was true? His question is basically, what would be the point of going through all of this if the resurrection wasn't true? It would make no sense. Wouldn't it be better for to follow any path than this one? But they didn't follow, but they did follow it because the path ultimately leads to Christ Jesus and the truth that we too shall be resurrected just as he was, if in fact we believe the gospel message. The real question then should be, how could somebody not be willing to stand in jeopardy every hour? If this life is just a temporary blip on the way to eternal glory, who cares? Who cares at all? Life application with Christ, there is hope. Without Christ, there is none. Be willing to put yourself at risk for the truth of Christ and the sanctity of his superior and most 
precious word. You know, I know a couple verses that are Christians and they have told me they find it surprising that the ones that want to cling on to life the most at the end are the Christians. I, I would just let go right now. If there was something bothering me that, I mean, physically, let me go. There's nothing keeping me here except being alive. I don't understand why anybody would want to cling on to life in this life. It's dirty. It's painful. You got headaches and toothaches and, you know, whatever. Children and grandchildren. Well, that's true. You got children and grandchildren, but if they're believers, you're going to see them again. And if they're not, then you better get telling them about Jesus. I mean, I, there's nothing keeping me here. Literally nothing. I mean, I'm going to keep going. If I'm here 80 years, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, but I really want to go be with Jesus. That's what I want. So my very first Bible class, my small group, that was like when I first came to Christ, that came up through those uh, very verses. Yeah. It was funny because like everybody like looking at each other going like, oh, okay, I, I do want to go. I want to go soon, but. But I want to see but, my but, daughter's graduation. But, but, yeah, exactly. There was, there was always a like after. There, after the, my calendar is clear after this day. There is like, nothing that I think is more important than going to be with Jesus. Nothing. That's, that is my total consuming passion. I know a couple people that are that way, and I'm not saying anybody's wrong if they're not that way. I'm just saying, to me, that's all I want. That's all. I, but as long as I'm here, I will continue to brush my teeth. I'll continue well, to... Good. Yeah, no, I'm saying take care of myself. Okay. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm talking about. I'll continue to do all the things I'm supposed to do. If I have a headache, I'll take an aspirin, but I just... Paul said it. I have a desire. A desire. But but it's more needful. More needful than, and that's the way I look at it. As long as I'm here, it's more needful. I'm here until he says. But when I'm gone, don't pity me. Have a party. Holy shamoli. Okay, uh, verse fifteen thirty one. I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, that's completely different than this one. I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. So they've completely changed it. I mean, it's, yeah, they, they turned it around. But, I mean, it says the same thing. But anyway, uh, the difficulty of verse 29 is partially explained in this verse. Paul noted that those who are baptized for the dead, he noted them. He tells us now as an affirmation, I affirm. It's a note concerning the surety of hope that the believer possesses in Christ. This follows directly from his words of verse 30, which told us that he stood in jeopardy every hour. As a follow-on to that, he says, By the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. The boasting, he notes, concerning the Corinthians is noted in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 3. Also, let me read that. Seems how we're going by there. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 3. Um, yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Speaking of an offering that they were making for the saints down in Jerusalem. Okay, they are his converts and the people of the church he helped to establish. He had suffered greatly for them, placing his life in jeopardy for their sakes, as much as for the sake of any other churches he was involved in. They were as children to, children to a father to him. This boast of Paul is then noted as in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those who have called upon Christ are in Christ. They have moved from death to life. We talked about that three verses ago. And yet, he says, I die daily. He put himself on the line for their sake through many trials and sufferings. Of these trials and sufferings, any could result in his actual death. And so he metaphorically says, I die daily. 
What would be the point of such a life if the hope of the resurrection wasn't true? And thus, what would be the point of baptism in that hope? The very nature of baptism is a picture of death in Christ and then being raised to newness of life. Being submerged pictures his death and thus our participation in that. Being raised pictures his resurrection and thus our participation in that. Therefore, Paul's comment that he dies daily has no true and lasting consequences because ultimately he is in Christ and he's already possessor of eternal life. So it doesn't really matter. You know what? When you go down the road and your car hits another car, what do we call that? Accident. It's an accident because it wasn't expected. So when we say I die daily, that means every single person on this planet. We have no idea what's going to happen 10 seconds from now. We have no idea. We get into the car and we start it up and we drive and somebody whacks us from the side and we die. We die daily. Paul just died daily to Christ. There's a difference because everybody here, as Jim likes to say, none of us is getting out of here alive. None of us. And we don't know when it's going to happen. We die daily. Okay. Yeah, uh, this thing about the baptizing for the dead, this is all, I think, needs to explain what baptism is. It's a testimony of, that's right. of our life in Christ. It's our hope in Christ. It's not something we do for somebody else. No, that's absolutely right. You know, we do it because of our hope in Christ. Yeah. We're not baptized for the dead. We're baptized for the living. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's what baptism is. People will email me about baptism from time to time, and I send them to the, just type in Superior Word, um, uh, Romans, baptism, and there's a two-part sermon or two-part uh, study that'll come up, part one and then part two. Go watch those and you'll understand baptism and why we baptize and why it's different between the Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans and uh, Acts chapter 10. Why is it different? Because some people will say, well, that's, you must be baptized in order to be saved. That's the Church of Christ, Acts 2.38. Well, who is he speaking to in Acts 2.38? Speaking to the Jews, okay? And there was a reason why that was done. It's not because they're given a different gospel at all. It's the same gospel, but there is a reason why. And then the Samaritans, a different order of things happened. And then in uh, Acts chapter 10, a different order of things happened with Cornelius. And guess what? What happened in all three of those accounts doesn't mirror at all what we're told will happen in the normal life of a believer in Paul's epistles. And so that means that Acts is descriptive. descriptive. It's describing what happened, and there's a reason why it's describing it. It does not prescribe anything. You want to know the fault of almost every single major doctrine in New Testament churches. It comes from handling Acts improperly as a prescriptive book. It is not. There's only about five verses in the entire book of Acts which can be considered prescriptive. And most of them begin right at the beginning of Acts when Jesus speaks. And other than that, almost every single verse in the book of Acts is simply descriptive. It's telling you what happened, and there's a reason why it happened. And then Paul writes his letters, and he explains to us what we are to do. There was something going on in the early church, and it is always reconcilable to God showing us different parts of his redemptive plan in those different actions. The key to Acts 2, 8, and 10 is a person. If you don't know who that person is and don't say it, go watch those two videos and you'll understand why that happened. But Acts is descriptive. It is never to be used in a prescriptive manner. And if you do, you will be a charismatic. You'll be a Presbyterian. You'll be a, a, you know, a Jehovah's Witness. You'll be something other than a properly grounded Bible-believing Christian because you have You'll be a hyper-dispensationalist. That's what you'll be. 
you'll be a hyper dispensationalist. And that's just as crazy as a football bat. So, yes, go ahead. Acts 10, he said, they received the Holy Spirit as right. they spoke. Okay. Then they asked, what does hinder us to be baptized? That's right. The baptism came after afterward. And, and the, but Peter says that it comes before. Baptize and repent and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I'm saying none of the three match what Paul says in his epistles. And it's a descriptive pattern of what is going on, why it's going on. It's not for two different gospels. It's not to show you Holy Spirit power coming down when you believe any of that. Or there's a second birth of the Holy Spirit as charismatics will say. None of those things are correct. Bad doctrine comes from mishandling the book of Acts especially. If you get Acts right then understanding all of the epistles will fall naturally into place. You'll say, I understand why Paul wrote this and why we are to follow this. That's the Holy why. Holy Spirit baptizing us. Not a drop of water in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Right. Not a drop of water there. That's right. So, you know, you can eliminate that from being saved or being Abs easy, Absolutely know? right. There you go. Okay, so here we go. Um, where was I? Um, uh, I'll read that again. The very nature of baptism is a picture of death in Christ and then being raised to newness of life. Being submersed pictures is death. I know I've read this. I want to remind you. And thus our participation in that. Being raised pictures his resurrection and our participation in that. Therefore, Paul's comment that he dies daily has no true lasting consequences because ultimately he is in Christ and he is already the possessor of eternal life. When those who follow him in his examples are baptized, they are so baptized in this same hope. He will continue to explain this in the coming verse. Life application, if you have received Christ and you truly believe that you have been granted eternal life, then why should the prospect of facing death in this life really matter? Yes, the thought of physical death can be unnerving. It unnerves Charlie Garrett. But if our hope in Christ is sure, it is not the end of the story. Should we face death? Let us demonstrate the faith we possess in a manner worthy of the promise tied to that faith. Okay, yes. Quick commentary. We're reading 1 Corinthians. He is beating them about the head of all the goofy stuff that they have done. That's right. How would you ever guess at the end of 2 Corinthians that he's now, I'm boasting about you guys. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He starts with beating them up, and by the end of 2 Corinthians, he's saying what a good job they're doing. So that's a good point there. Okay, 1532. 32. Here we go. Um, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay, different structure, but it says the same thing. 1532. This completes Paul's thoughts, which are tied to verse 29, concerning the difficult words, baptized for the dead. In that verse, he noted, if the dead do not rise at all, then why are they baptized for the dead? Remember, dead, dead, dead. He's not using the term sleep. He's using the term dead. In that verse, he, uh, oh, he again ties in the same thought concerning the dead rising now. In preparation for that, he explains what he meant in the preceding verse, which said, I die daily. Putting it in the form of a question, he asks, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? First, in the manner of men is speaking of his mortal nature. It is a nature which can and will die. It could come about at any event, from a mild infection turning into a greater one, to a sudden heart attack, or even to an external disaster such as being run over by a stampede of bulls. 
Life is tenuous and it can end in a myriad of ways. And so to stress the foolish nature of living a life for Christ, if the dead do not rise, he uses a real life example, which could have led to his death and which was not accidental, but purposeful. That example is fighting, as he says, with beasts at Ephesus. It is unknown here whether Paul is speaking of literal beasts or if he's speaking figuratively. I would go with the latter. The book of Acts and his other writings tells us nothing of him fighting with literal beasts. And so this is probably a figurative term for people who fought rabidly against him. This type of speaking is common in the world and even in the Bible. In just one psalm, there are three examples of it. I'm going to take you to Psalm. Anybody know where I'm going? Psalm 22. It says here in Psalm 22, verses, hang on, 12 and 13. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like raging, like a raging and roaring lion. And then in verse 16, it says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And then down in verses 20 and 21, deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. He's speaking about men, but he uses the term beasts is what Paul is doing. Paul even comments that he was delivered from the lion's mouth in 2 Timothy 4.17, certainly metaphorically. Additionally, as a Roman citizen, he would not have been subject to fighting beasts in an amphitheater. Therefore, the probability is that he is speaking figuratively. This then would be in contrast to in the manner of men that he opened this verse. Regardless of this, whether real beasts or enemies with the characteristics of beasts, if he willingly put his life in peril in such a manner, knowing that the dead do not rise, it would be an utterly foolish gesture. If life is tenuous on a good day, how much more so when one eagerly steps into harm's way and that for a cause which he would known to be false. You know, uh, what's his name? Evil Knievel used to put himself in harm's way, right? He was doing it for glory of man, okay? He knew that he could die, but he did it again and again. If he was doing it, I'm doing this thing for the gospel of Jesus, it would be, what, what are you doing? He broke every single bone in his body, right? Doing his jumps and stuff. Well, eventually, guess what Evil Knievel did? He became Christian. Did he? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. He gave his testimony there on TV, and yeah, he became a Christian, but it was towards the end of his life. But there you go. That's what Paul is saying. If I'm doing all this stuff for a guy that didn't raise, and I have no hope, why would I bother? That was one of the first things that uh, when I was getting into studying the Bible, like the, the folks that were around me were saying, you know, they all were killed except for John. Yeah. Why would they, they do they, that? Who, who would? Think of anybody. Lawsuits will make people say, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. You did it. That's <laughs> right. Like, you give yourself up immediately instantly. if you know something is not true. And you you would you're have to know it's by something horrible. You're going to spit out what's real. That's right. Was it fake? Was it not? And That's right. Rather than such a foolish waste, it would be so much better to follow another path. And so what does he do? He cites scripture. Let us eat and drink or tomorrow we die. The death, if the dead are not raised, then this life is all we have. Wouldn't it be better, better to party the time away and do all the things that we wanted to, regardless as to whether they were moral and proper? I would say yes. I'd say it's a lot better. 
wouldn't it be better to get all uh, one could get, experience all one could experience and live life to the fullest? If this one life is it, then why not make the best of it? I'd say once again, we're doing the wrong thing here. I've said uh, recently to somebody, oh, was it the eye exam yesterday? We were talking about work and I said, I work every, I work seven days a week. I get up at four o'clock or actually I get up earlier and I start working four o'clock and I work until after six, seven days a week. And I said, I've taken three voluntary days off in the past eight years. I did take some time off to go work at my dad's house and that was not voluntary. I worked harder up there than I work at, I come back and I'm exhausted. And then I've had twice, twice people asked me to come out and baptize their children. So I did that for the church, okay? That was once again, very stressful to me it, because I have to put everything aside and I've got to catch up on everything I'm not doing. But I did it because they're- it, Oh yeah, I, I love traveling. Yeah, I can't stand it. I've taken three voluntary days off in the past eight years, seven days a week, 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. Why would I do that unless I believed what I believed? It wouldn't make any sense. I might as well just take a day off every week and go out and party and whatever, maybe take two days off a week and go out and go sailing. I love to surf. I haven't surfed since I started, you know, pursuing Christ at all. I haven't gone out once, but I love to surf. Now I do get some time off sometimes on Fridays and I get some time off on Wednesday afternoon. There are times when I can get free time. It's not a full day ever because I'm still doing all the things I do every Friday and every Wednesday, whatever. But I'm talking about full days off. I haven't taken one off. And I did take a half a day off two years ago when I went out to the uh, veterans, uh, the girl at school, she does the veteran stuff. And once a year, they take all the veterans out boating and fishing. I did that a couple of years ago, but it wasn't a full day. Once again, I went home and I did all the work that I would have done that day. So anyway, something that is believable. believable. It's something, it's not just believable. It's my it hope. Is. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what I'm hoping for. And I want people to be instructed in this word. That's why I do this. And when people ask me, why do you keep that up? I say, because I'm in a comfortable rut. I love it. I love the rut I'm in. I don't want to change it. And when I'm tired and I've got the flu, I still get up and I still do it because I want to get this word out. I don't want to miss what I'm doing because this is the only chance I have to get it out. And he may call me home tomorrow. So get it done while you can. Anyway, let's go on. Um, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, okay? Uh, and to show even more forcefully that this is the case, he cites a portion of Isaiah chapter 22. In that passage, Isaiah speaks of Jerusalem being hemmed in by enemies, ready to be destroyed. For the people inside, they made a choice. Rather than reaching out to God in repentance because of their sin, which caused the destruction to come, and rather than asking for his powerful hand to have mercy and save them, they turn to the tables of, which are full of food for one last delightful meal. Here is the account which is recorded in Isaiah chapter 22. It says there in Isaiah 22, verse 12. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning. He sent his prophets out and said, weep and mourn. There's destruction coming. Humble yourselves. So weep and mourn for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And then he goes on and says, then it was revealed, verse 14, in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity, there will be no atonement for you, even to your death says the Lord God of hosts. That's a scary thought. The only other time you're gonna see that particular 
sentiment is when the two sons of Hoff, uh, Eli, Hophni and Phineas, treated the Lord with contempt. And he said basically the same thing to them. That is a scary, scary thought. All right. Paul even comments that he was, uh, no, I'm down here. The utterly disrespectful attitude of those in Jerusalem was so brazen that the Lord said their sin would never, never be atoned for. Even if they lived through the siege, they would never be forgiven. Paul's use, Paul uses their words as the ultimate example of futility in a life without hope of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then there is also no atonement. If there is no atonement, then the prospects of meeting God are to be considered utterly futile. Only condemnation awaits the departed soul. And that's why he chose that verse from Isaiah. This line of reasoning by Paul explains the difficult meaning of baptized for the dead in verse 29. What will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? The answer is they will perish like all flesh. Without the resurrection, there is no hope at all. But because Christ is risen, there is hope, and therefore there is a reason to put oneself in harm's way. With Christ, every action we take has purpose if it is done in the hope of the resurrection. Life application, instead of let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, our attitude should be let us rejoice for our souls live even if we die. Good stuff. 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Okay, that's short and sweet there. Okay, this verse refers all the way back to verse 12, which Paul then went on to argue against for the next many verses. There in verse 12, he asked, Now if, the, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? From there, he defended the truth of a literal bodily resurrection. In order for them to stop listening to contrary arguments which can only pervert the simplicity of the gospel, he tells them first, do not be deceived. Anything which is not in line with the gospel that was presented to them, which is 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read it to you again because we're in that chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll just start in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, Unless you believed in vain, for I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then Last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. I'm going to read that sentence again now that you've heard those verses. Anything which is not in line with that gospel, which I just read, is to be considered a deception. If one were to listen to such nonsense, it could only negatively affect them. In order to help them understand this, he says, evil company corrupts good habits. This is an iambic line from by Meander. Okay, that's an old poem. It would have probably been a commonly quoted maxim by those in Corinth, and so Paul uses it to help them remember the warning. In this quote, the word for company includes the idea of communications as well as associations. We pick up bad habits from those we closely align ourselves with. Also in the quote, the word habits comes from the Greek word homilili, 
It is used only this once in the New Testament, and it refers to a place where one is accustomed to hang out or sit at. In the plural, then, it leads to the thought of morals, manners, and character. Life application, and we'll finish because I don't think we're going to get one more now. Let me check really quickly. No, no way. Okay, life application in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, Paul indicates that we can associate with worldly people who act in a manner which is not Christ-like. However, he now shows that becoming too closely attached to them or anyone who would draw us away from the truth of Christ is not healthy. There must be an appropriate balance in our associations in order to stay strong and properly attuned to the things of Christ. Quick yes. Why is that saying that quotation marks? Because it's a quote, as I said, from, uh, it's an iambic quote from, I'll tell you one more, uh, hang on here. Um, that, 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 where was I? It's from, it's an iambic line from Thais, T-H-A-I-S by Menander. It was obviously a, a poem or a play written by somebody named Menander called Thais, and that's why it's in quotes. It's not a biblical quote, but Paul does that elsewhere. He does it in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 17. He quotes um, a couple of uh, Epimenides and uh, what? Poets. Yeah, poets, a couple poets, and then he does it again uh, back in... Um, Titus, I think it's Epimenides again. Yeah, the Epimenides paradox, where he says all um, Cretans are liars, and that's a paradox. What is he trying to do? He's trying to get you to think it through, because if all Cretans are liars, then the statement is false, okay? But he's saying that that person said it, but if he said it, then it must be true, and so it's a paradox. Anyway, there you go. Um, he's trying to get you to think through in logic. Anyway, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful chance to look into your word and we thank you that we do have a hope and that we're not baptized for the dead, but we're baptized for the living. Yeah. And that our hope is sure. It is, it is a guarantee. There's nothing in the cosmos or in the deepest depths of Satan's heart that can keep us from being raised to newness of life because of what Christ did. did. And we're so thankful for that. We're so thankful for that wonderful hope that we possess and the people that we know that have gone before us, certainly we miss them in our hearts and we think of them often, but we know that we will see them again if they are also in Christ. And what a comfort that is for us. So we place our, our woes and our sadnesses in your capable hands, knowing that you are tending to them in your own way. And we thank you for that. You're a loving and wonderful creator. And we do praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's see. Uh, break. Break. Hey, close that bubble, Pat.